Hi, this is Jim Lobato, and I'm president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You're listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on the BizTalk radio show. I started BizTalk so you'd have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group. At Performance Group, we work at the front end of a company's revenue stream. We find the salespeople who generate the revenue, and we provide onboarding programs that get them doing that sooner. Our passion is aligning talent with opportunity. That's why we're known as a Salesforce development company. Enjoy the program. On our program today, we have Paul Falcone. He has an extensive background in human resources. He has served as vice president of HR for NBC Universal, Time Warner Cable, and Nickelodeon. Paul is also the author of several books centered on the subject of talent selection, employee management, and development. Today, we're discussing his insights on talent selection and his book, 96 Great Interview Questions to Ask Before You Hire. Paul, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jim. It's nice to be here. Well, I'm a little bit nervous interviewing somebody who's written 96 questions you should ask people. (laughs) (laughs) Don't don't use the questions against me. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) So tell me about a time when. (laughs) Right, exactly. So, Paul, I wanted to have you on the program because we focus a lot of our time and attention around talent selection and, and, of course, talent development. But talent selection seems to be so difficult from the aspect we always share about the mismatches. So in your opinion, why is talent selection, finding the right person to fill that role, seem to be so difficult today? You know, it's funny, Jim. The markets go up and down, and we know that these days it's really hard to find great talent because, you know, the strongest people tend to be employed. They're engaged at this point. That wasn't the case a few years ago, but the markets change very quickly. And so I think if you're a hiring manager, if you're an owner of a company, if you're an executive, you know, trying to find the right person is probably the most important decision that you're going to make. And, you know, you think of all the different things that exist out there from performance reviews and talent planning, succession planning, employee opinion surveys. You do everything to try and develop and engage in a satisfied workforce. But all that stuff goes back to the core. Is who did you select to join the team? And so if you hire someone who's an excellent performer, you don't have to worry too much about all those other activities. Yet if you hire someone who's not that good a performer or maybe has some kind of behavioral you know, quirks, you end up managing to weaknesses as opposed to building on strengths, and that's being upside down in the equation. So there really is a lot at stake in bringing the right person aboard. And I think people know it. They just want to know how do you get there and, and how do you trust your gut to that point. You bring up an interesting point that you're managing to their weaknesses, which also tends to take up all your time, which I've noticed. Correct. You're doing that. Correct. Okay, so the book, 96 Interview Questions to Ask Before You Hire. Obviously, we're not going to ask all 96 in interview, or, or maybe you're suggesting that you are. My fear is someone listening to the program says, well, okay, that's it. God, we got 96 great interview questions here. I'll just buy the book. I'll pick the six or seven I like, and we'll ask those questions. Problem solved. We can match somebody because Paul said, right, if we ask these questions, we can find the right person. I suspect it's a little bit more difficult than that. 
No, no, actually, I like that. That's a good model. I've never heard that one, Jim, but we'll go with that one for now. (laughs) Okay. Um, No, seriously, the thing about the book, I'll just do a quick overview, is I don't necessarily want to read a book from page one to page 240 to figure out what's going on. So I like to write books the way I like to read them. And in theory, what I did was I put together the 10 best interview questions if you're hiring salespeople or questions if you're hiring a college campus, you know, to recruit, or if you're hiring an admin person or if you're hiring a senior executive. That, to me, makes sense. Just get me to where I need to be and tell me the top five or the top ten questions for that particular breed of cat. But I also wanted to put in there, you know, the fact that, you know, there were red flags that you need to look for in the responses. And you need to know when you need to dig a little bit deeper. Because the funny thing is, you know, I started my career as a headhunter. I did that for about six years before I moved into recruitment. And then corporate recruitment, I was interviewing inside the company as opposed to referring candidates from outside the company. But after you do a couple of thousand interviews, people start to respond in patterns. And you can almost, I don't want to say predict, but you know where candidates are going with their responses. And so the idea of the book was, you know, take what some of those more common responses are, know what's a red flag, know where you need to push down a little bit harder before you move on to your next question. That's good insight that people respond in patterns and looking for the red flags. And I do like that about your book that you point out the red flags and even some caution signs of how people are answering that. Because the other issue that I see is I can give you the interview question, right? Here's a great interview question, but if you don't understand the context by which I'm asking that question or what a good answer looks like or a bad answer looks like, then it doesn't matter you have a great question. Correct. And the funny thing, Jim, to your point earlier, and I know I was teasing about it, there's no magic. There's nothing that says ask these There's not? There's no magic? Life will be perfect. (laughs) Life will be perfect. It's a guarantee. But what I say is my argument is you want to look for what I call high probability hires. There is no guarantee, and I get that. With human beings, unfortunately, you can't get guarantees. But a high probability hire means you're asking the right kinds of questions. You know what to do with the content. When they give you a response, you get to a point where you can almost trust your gut to know that this is something that I get or this flies in the face of my own experience. I think I better ask a few more questions about this. And then, you know, depending on what your company wants to do, I'm a big proponent of reference checks. I would never hire someone without checking references. A lot of companies do background checks uh, and make sure that they're you know, from a criminal standpoint that people are vetted. Companies do tests. There's no guarantee no matter what you do, but the more, I don't want to say hurdles, but the more screening factors, the screening mechanisms that you have in place, the greater the chance that the hire will be a, a high probability hire. Great interview questions are good to have in your arsenal, but at the same time, I suspect that the interview question is nothing more than the bridge between the person you're interviewing, and the role you're trying to fill. Meaning that I can ask this question, but if I don't put it in context to the role I'm trying to fill and what that role demands, then, again, it's probably not that good an interview question. So in your experience, have you seen that disconnect between that candidate and that role because the person doing the interviewing really doesn't understand what that role is going to demand out of that person or they won't clearly have defined what results they're trying to get that role to produce? Have you seen some fuzziness around that? That is a great question. You are very schooled in this topic. You must have read some really good books, is my guess. Yeah, you phrased it very well. And the answer is yes. You have to know what you're looking for. So one of the things that I spend at the front of the book is I say, 
you know, what are your criteria in general when you're trying to hire? And everyone should have an answer to that. Now, for me, I've got four. I look for longevity because I like a return on my investment. I look for progression through the ranks. So I'm looking for people who are trying to get ahead and learning new ways of adding value. I look for the technical skills match, depending on the role. And then the fourth one for me, and by design, the fourth one, Jim, is the people factor, the connection, the natural likability. But a lot of people go with making that one the first one. And that's a mistake. You have to be more diagnostic about this. You have to understand what you're looking for, and then you factor in the likability piece as a swing factor, yay or nay. So those are my four. But what I advise people in the book is it's like, but you have to pick your own four, and you have to know what's important to you and how do you build and craft questions around those things, which you would call your core values, the things that are important to you that you think spell long-term success and make for higher probability hires. The second part of your question, though, is you also have to know what the role calls for. Not everyone needs to be a racehorse. Sometimes you need a plow horse. There's a difference. Racehorses are great, but they can only work in sprints. They can go a few hundred yards at a time, and then they need a rest. And that's fine. And a plow horse can go on for miles and miles and miles. Depends on the kind of role that you're looking for. So there is that combination of knowing your own values as a hiring manager and then understanding what's really critical to this role and putting that all together. Those are the ingredients in the soup that are going to make for a long-term successful hire. In your experience, you've had roles where you were the vice president of human resources. I'm assuming in that role, you're kind of driving the bus on that initiative. You're trying to make sure that your hiring managers have this all in alignment. Is that a fair assessment of one of the activities of a vice president of HR? Sure, very much so. Okay. So companies who, let's say mid-sized companies, who aren't large enough to have a VP of HR, who should be driving that? Who should be driving to make sure that those things are in line, that the core values are there, the characteristics of the person are there, and the demands that the role are going to be there so that the hiring managers get that right? And they don't default to likability or industry experience. If they have those two things, then they're automatically qualified. Yeah, that's a great question. The funny thing for me, Jim, is the books that I've written have not targeted HR audiences. That's not really the audience. I've always written for a general management audience. Now, the funny thing is I think HR people like the book and they buy the book. And the reason why the book has done so well over the years is it combines both the worlds. It has my headhunter side, which, again, I did for about six years before I got into corporate HR. And then it has my in-house recruiter experience all combined into one. And I think the part that people like about this is as the recruiter, as the headhunter, I always looked at what I called a DIP, a DIP, a deal in progress. You're always trying to look for not just bringing the person aboard, but there's a proactive strategy to making sure, are they really ready to make a move? Are they going to accept a counteroffer at their next company? You know, you have to kind of get ahead of the deal, so to speak, because in the headhunting business, you're selling the only product in the world that can refuse to be sold, right? You're not selling a widget. The candidate can say, you know what, I've changed my mind. So you have to kind of have an organizational forecasting ability. You have to be able to look at these things and understand how to get someone on board. So when you look at the corporate side, it's a little different. There's a screening piece where you're expecting the fish to jump into the boat, and you're just whacking out the ones that you don't like, but the fish keep trying to get in the boat. In the headhunting side of the business, it's just the opposite. You've got to put your pole in the water there, and you've got to try and find the fish. When you put the two together, I think it makes a more holistic approach, which probably makes the book a little more unique. But the idea of making sure that you're two steps ahead of where candidates are in the process is critical. And the other thing I would say is you don't have to have an HR department. 
one of the most important things you will ever do as an effective executive and leader and manager and frontline supervisor is hire the right people. You have to, I hope, that most people would probably agree to that. And if they wanted to invest, whether it's through a workshop or a book or whatever it happens to be, spend some time getting to know yourself getting to know, you know, define what your values are, how do you find questions to get you there, whether it's this book or some other book, doesn't really matter, or it's a workshop, or it's a class at an extension program, invest in learning how to hire more effectively. It will pay off in spades in your career. We hear that advice, and I think that's good advice. Let's say I hear that advice a lot, obviously, because I'm doing the show and I interview people like you. So that's the universal theme, you know, hire right, hire right, hire right. Why, in your opinion... Do we see a lot of managers in their career development never focus in that area? I mean, they'll go learn something about, oh, I'll be learn how to be a better manager. I'll, I'll learn how to do better forecasting. I'll learn how to do better performance appraisals. But rarely do people come along and say, you know what? I spent this whole program on learning how to be a better interviewer. Yeah, Jim, the problem is worse than you think. Uh, what my experience has been so many times is a manager has an opening. They're so busy, they can't look at the resumes. And by the time they start bringing candidates in, it's 8 to 12 weeks later. And by the time we try and reach those candidates, they've already found other jobs. Then you have to repost the job. You have to start all over again. And their tails are on fire. They're so busy. And their answer is, time and time again, I don't have the time to interview. And my response is, are you kidding? You're understaffed. or You've got an approved headcount. Get this thing filled and fill it immediately. This has to be your top priority. It'll take the pressure off of everyone else. But if you're constantly chasing your tail because you're too busy to make this a priority, number one, you're going to lose the candidates that are in line. And number two, it sends the wrong message to your employees. They're all dying on the vine because they need this headcount, and you're not making it a priority. How do you think it makes them feel? You know, involve everyone in the process if you can. Make it a shared responsibility. Use this as a way to build your team. Get them all involved in the process. Peer interviews are a great way to, to do interviews. But, you know, you have to spend a little time teaching them what they should be looking for and the questions they're asking. You have to make it fun. Make it creative. Make it something that, you know, is a shared experience that the group can engage in, not just something that you, the manager, have to do and take off your to-do list. Because when you are busy with immediate, you know, things coming down from your boss, you tend to push this off. And I've seen it happen time and time again. But you can't get out of the rut until you bring someone aboard. Make that your priority. Tell me the difference from your perspective as a headhunter, your view of the world and what, in terms of what you brought to the table as compared to when you were a corporate recruiter, in other words, working for the employer, and how you were recruiting then. Is there a difference between those two roles you played? I would say, I mean, both sides of the house, whether you're on executive search or if you're internal corporate HR uh, recruiter, both love the thrill of the chase. A lot of times what recruiters in corporate America will tell you is, I'm a recruiter. I'm not an HR guy. They like to distinguish between those two. It's like, no, HR is different. They do like open enrollment and stuff. I'm a recruiter. I find talent. And that's fine. And I think a lot of people in search have gone into corporate HR, and a lot of people from the corporate recruitment have gone into search. It kind of goes back and forth because they're different sides of looking at the same thing. To answer your question, the core driver is different, though. When you're on the corporate side, a lot of what you do, and, and this is an interesting concept, but I want to throw it at you, corporate recruiters oftentimes come from fear. And what the fear is, if I hire someone or I recommend someone and the department hires them, and it's a great hire, 
the department manager takes full credit for the hire. But if I refer someone and it does not work out, that hiring manager is going to say, well, it was the recruiter's fault. They didn't give me anyone to look at, so I hired you know, the best of a poor bunch. And so in-house recruiters, in that sense, have to make sure that they can sleep at night by saying, well, you know what, Mr. Employer or Miss Employer, Miss Client, I'm sorry it didn't work out with John Doe, but i got to be honest with you. If I had to hire him all over again, I would. He comes from a competitor. He knows your industry. He interviewed exceptionally well. He has great references. Everything that we looked at three months ago said that this person was geared for progression and can make the same contribution to our company that she successfully made to her prior employer. I'm sorry it didn't work out, but I still think it was the right decision. That's where the corporate recruiter has to come from. The worst place for a corporate recruiter to come from is it doesn't work out. The hiring manager complains that it's HR's fault, and the recruiters, you know, and they say, why did you hire the person? Why did you recommend the person? And the recruiter doesn't have all that good an answer. So the, the incentive is a little different. Corporate recruiters have to make sure that their clients are happy. That validates their existence. The headhunting side is a little different. It's actually money. If you don't do this the right way, you don't eat. So I'm not saying that their motivation isn't as pure as a corporate recruiter, but they are looking at a deal in progress. They are functional middlemen, and their job is to find that talent and make sure that talent sticks, not only for the particular search assignment that they're doing, but also to keep that client happy so the client comes back for future business. So it's a different motive, but it all ends up going in the same place. They just look at it different ways. In your experience, whether you've done part of that selection process, been involved in it, or a manager in your company you had worked for had done it, has there been one person who stood out who was exceptionally good at selecting talent other than yourself? Yes. Okay. Of course. Sure. What made them exceptionally good at selecting talent, in your opinion? Okay. So the funny thing is people think that all of this, oh, I have to ask 96 interview questions. You don't. You don't have to ask any of the questions in my book. I tell people time and time again, you have to build a relationship and a rapport with a candidate, and you don't have a lot of time to do it. If all you're going to do is Q&A, it's like repartee with the swords, and they're thrusting and pairing. And do it. That's not what this is about, because you'll never get to know the real person. There's something that I call either career counselor interviewing or coach interviewing, and the idea is when you sit with someone, give them the benefit of the guidance of your years of experience, of your knowledge of the company, and talk to people and ask them questions questions that are about them in the sense where you can say, Jim, tell me what criteria you're looking for in selecting your next company or your next job. And Jim, why would accepting a job with us right now make sense in terms of your overall career progression and building your resume? And Jim, how would you explain accepting this job right now to a prospective employer five years from now? What would be the value add, so to speak, that you think you would bring to the table to this particular company? And where do you see that going five years from now? When you ask these kinds of questions to help them think about where they fit in, you'd be surprised. They almost melt. The wall comes down. And sometimes they'll say, you know, Jim, I normally don't say this in an interview, but as soon as you get that, you got the real person. Forget the persona, forget the facade, forget all the interview parrying back and forth. You want to get to know the person and get past all the nonsense. And I think that's the most important thing. It's being humanistic. It's being there to say, I'm not just selecting you based on your ability to contribute here. I also want to figure out if this is a good move for you, and I want to help you determine that. So let's talk out loud, and let's figure out if this is the right move for you now and where this can help you grow your career in the future. I like that. I don't think I've had anybody ever tell that (laughs) on our program here. 
Well, it makes sense. I think one of the hardest questions to answer is, what do you want to do in your life? And when I'm interviewing people, that's one of the questions I ask them. What do you want to do? Mm-hmm. And just to listen is, is what they really want to do in alignment with what this job's really going to demand out of them at this right. particular time? You know, and can mm-hmm. people articulate that, what they want to do in their life or what they want to do in their career? You wrote 96, if not more, interview questions. One or two that are just your favorites? Oh, that's a good question. The career interviewing questions that I just mentioned are my favorites. Those are the ones I always recommend. But the other questions that I typically ask is, you know, walk me through your progression in your career, leading me up to what you do now on a day-to-day basis. I like to ask people questions that give some kind of organizational framework. There's an excellent trainer in the search field, Peter Lefkowitz. He's out of Kansas City, Missouri. And he has always recommended that question, and that has stayed with me for 20 years. That question gets people talking. It's a good opener. It's a nice alternative to, you know, tell me about yourself, which is so generic, it's almost hard for candidates to put their hands around. Another example of a question I tend to like a lot, Jim, is tell me, you know, What makes you stand out as a rarity among your peers? And I usually qualify and say, I'm not asking you to brag too much, but honestly, I'd like to hear a little bit about what you think helps you stand out. That kind of question gives people permission to brag a bit, and people aren't naturally inclined to do so. So, you know, you can take that question and say, okay, I think that's a great answer. Can you do anything in terms of qualifying a little bit, in terms of increasing revenue, decreasing costs, saving time? What did that look like? And all of a sudden you're into these behavior-based questions where you're talking a little bit off. You want to get off the spiel. You want to get off the track of QA, QA. You want to get to know the person. And asking them that question about what makes them stand out among their peers is an interesting question. Depending on their level of self-esteem, some people sit up in their chair, some people sit back in their chair. A salesperson, I expect them to sit up in their chair. Other jobs, not quite as critical. But I do want to ask them about those achievements. Getting that achievement focus, that orientation, getting people to talk about those things is really where you draw the line. It's like that's where I want to spend my time because those are the kinds of people that I like to generally hire. Thank you for that. One of my favorites in Chapter 4, you talk about career stability, and I never thought of it this way, but you have a whole section on qualifying the layoffs because it is realistic today to have people who are involved in a layoff, and I always wonder when someone says that they were downsized, right-sized, whatever word you've laid off, I'm always going to go, well, were you part of the group they laid off because you're the underperformers, or was this just part of a blanket layoff that you just get caught up in that net and uh, you get thrown out with uh, some other good people? And But you drill down on that in that chapter of additional questions to ask, you know, such as, you know, how many ways of layoffs were there? How many did you survive before they finally got to you other than you who was laid off? I think drilling down on that for me, I never thought about that in the past. So I thought that part of the book was really enlightening for me. So I think your book is will address almost every situation that a person's going to be involved with in their career, and that's what I liked about it, and plus the red flag section of that. All right, so the biggest misconception about hiring today is what, in your opinion? The biggest misconception is that you can make someone. You can manage weaknesses. You can shore up weaknesses. You can, don't worry, they'll fit in and we'll make it happen. And again, I guess to look at it more analytically, it's hiring based on your gut reaction, the likability portion, before you've done the analysis before you've looked at the compatibility piece. You've got to make sure that people have compatible business styles, and you have to make sure you're asking kinds of questions that speak to what their style is, 
to make sure that's a match before you ultimately say, but I really like him, because we do tend to hire in our own image. I mean, I get that. But you don't want to jump to that too quickly. And again, the other thing I'd say on that, Jim, is for me, hiring someone without checking references is like having a loose cannon on the deck of your ship. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't recommend it. Now, a lot of companies don't check references, and they think, oh, you're not allowed to. Oh, it's against the law. It isn't. You have to be careful how you do it, of course, because, you know, there are privacy issues, and you don't want to be in a situation where you get sued because someone figures out that their past employer gave them a bad reference, and now they're going to sue for defamation and all that stuff. There's a lot of drama that you have to be careful of. So companies steer clear of it. But it's actually much simpler than most employers think. And I wouldn't recommend that's a big miss on employers' parts when they think, I can tell in an hour if this person has potential for the next five years in my company. I'm not arrogant enough to think I can do that. I want to vet my initial impressions by prior supervisors. One piece of advice you would give a hiring manager today about employee selection would be what? Check references. But the way you do it is important. Don't just call a reference blind. When you speak with a candidate, you're looking at a resume or you're looking at an employment application, and it, you, know, you can find out the name of the person who was their supervisor and what the title was. And before you go to extend an offer, one of the pieces of the process should be call the candidate, tell them it's time for us to check references. We're doing this on a few finalists right now. We have a small group of people, even if they're the only one, I tell them. We have a small group of people that we have in our finalist ranks. It's time for us to check references. And what I'm going to ask you to do, Jim, is to reach out to the three employers you've listed here, John, Paul, and Mary, and I'd like you to call them, and I'd like you to tell them to expect my call. If it's easier for them to call me, they're more than welcome to give me a shout, or if they want me to call them, just call me back and let me have their most up-to-date information and tell them I'll give them a shout in the next day or two. By doing it that way, your call will be taken, in my experience, 80% of the time. There's still be some employers out there that say they won't give you a reference. And it's like, if they won't, they won't. But by putting the candidate, putting the burden on the candidate to reopen those lines of communication, I find that I get the reference information, you know, 80% of the time. And that's important to me. I'm not saying if I can't get a reference, I won't hire someone. But it is interesting if I ask them to call back three employers covering the last 10 or 15 years and no one is willing to speak to me, that worries me a little bit. I could ask them to give me copies of their performance reviews. Sometimes the companies are no longer in business or, you know, God forbid, the prior supervisor died. This, this thing happens. But I'll ask them if they can get me copies of their performance reviews so at least I can see strengths and weaknesses. But the one thing I really don't look at is letters of recommendation because letters of recommendation are totally one-sided. They only say positives. I've never seen a letter of recommendation with anything negative in it. So for me, it doesn't really count as a document in the pre-employment process. Yeah, when I talk to reference, I want to hear them. I want to listen to the tonality. I want to listen to the excitement. I want to listen to the hesitation, right? That goes along with what you're asking about the person. Exactly, exactly. And it's worth your investment of time because when you think about how incredibly important it is to hire the right person, you know, as a corporate recruiter, a lot of times I would invite the hiring manager to come sit with me or I'd do a conference call and I'd say, I want to check the reference. I'd love for you to join me. Now, interestingly enough, many of them said, no, thanks. You do it and tell me what you find out. Some of them who did sit in with me, and they'd say, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I've not been doing this up to this point in my career. And that was so good. Okay, Paul, if people wanted to learn more about you and how you might be able to help them, where would they go? Oh, thanks, Jim. Well, the book is called 96 Great Interview Questions to Ask Before You Hire. And uh, you can find it at your local Barnes & Noble or certainly on um, Amazon. And on Amazon, it'll have a link to my webpage and that sort of thing. So that should probably be the easiest way. And my last name is like Falcon the Bird, except there's an E at the end. So it's F-A-L-C-O-N-E. 
a nice Italian name. <laughs> there you go. Okay. So, Paul, is there one question today I should have asked you that I haven't? I think the only question would be is how successful have I been with my own hires? And um, honestly, Jim, I've, I've been really good at this stuff. I was good when I was working a desk as a recruiter in terms of matching the person's personality to the organization's culture because I think that's critical. And I've been very successful managing my own teams and hiring people for the companies that I've worked. And again, the, the kernel of truth to this, in my opinion, is you're almost shifting the employee development paradigm to the front end of the process before they're even brought aboard. When you're asking these kinds of questions to really understand what they want and if that's going to fit in and how they can explain this to a prospective employer five years from now and how it helps them build their own resume, you're talking person to person. It's, it gets behind all the, the hype and the facades and the Q&A, you know, that type of stuff. You really want to get to know the real person. That's the key to making great hires. And they'll be so impressed. Candidates will say, I've never been asked these kinds of questions in an interview before. And if the company cares to ask those questions about me and my own career development before I've even been hired, I mean, what does that tell you about the organization in terms of having a heart and, and helping you grow in your career? It's a great way to start an, a whole employment relationship. And I hope people like the ideas that I put forward in the book. I'm sure they will, Paul. And at the same time, you've mentioned that a couple times in this interview. So I get the impression that that really is the core to your success at being good at employee selection, that is really caring about and trying to understand that person. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely, Jim. It, it, there's no magic potion that says ask these five questions and you're going to have the perfect candidate. The questions are meant to start the dialogue and hopefully gain from someone else's experience who's interviewed these kinds of candidates before. But the reality is hiring with a heart, leading with a heart, making people know that you're sincere and that you care about them, and it starts in the pre-employment process, that's the key to successful hires because people feel bonded to you and they feel loyal to you, and that's the way you want to start any new relationship with someone coming into your company. The book is 96 Great Interview Questions to Ask Before You Hire. Our guest has been Paul Falcone. Paul, thanks for being on the program. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure. This or other BizTalk podcast may be downloaded by visiting our website, biztalkradioshow.com, where you can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at BizTalk1040 and like us on Facebook. If you want to learn the strategies finding and getting performance out of A-player salespeople, contact Performance Group by calling 800-950-9509 or visit us on the web at pmgllc.net. This has been your host, Jim Lovato.